Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. We start our show today with the story of what it's like to parent across an international border. More than a million kids here in California have parents who are undocumented. And with a spike in deportations, more families with mixed immigration status are being torn apart. An Oakland nurse and her husband facing deportation will in fact have to leave the U.S. today. Last summer, there was a lot of local TV news coverage when Maria Mendoza and Eusebio Sanchez were deported to rural Mexico. They made the difficult decision to leave their children behind in Oakland. Nine months later, reporter Levi Bridges and KPCC's Alyssa Jung Perry checked in with this family on each side of the U.S.-Mexico border. Before she was deported from California, Maria Mendoza hadn't been to Mexico in more than 20 years. Driving along the road where she grew up, Maria turns down the stereo to show me her hometown, Santa Monica, Hidalgo. Population, 120. Up here, that's where my dad is buried. Over here. And, and right There's here. not much to Santa Monica besides a cemetery, a school, and a couple stores out in an arid expanse of prickly pear cactuses and mesquite trees, about two hours north of Mexico City. Maria and her husband, Eusebio, spent their childhood here. This is my mom's house, and that's what I'm living now. With your mom? Yeah. Maria's 47, with wavy hair that's highlighted auburn. She has four kids, ranging in age from 24 to 12, back in Oakland, on the other side of the border. Nothing will ever be the same again. All of Maria's kids are U.S. citizens, except the oldest, Viani. She's protected by the Obama-era program DACA, that shields young adults who came to the U.S. illegally as children from deportation. Now Viani takes care of her siblings in California, and Maria is a long-distance mother. Each night, Maria checks in with her kids by video chat. My colleague Alyssa was there and picks up the story from Oakland. Hi, Viani. Hi, baby. Hi. Viani is sitting here with her little brother, Jesus, who's 12. The family uses the English pronunciation not Jesus. We're just sitting here in the kitchen. Um, Jesus barely finished eating. How was school, baby? Uh, school was good. The internet isn't great on Maria's end in Mexico. The calls drop a lot. Oh, no. But even with the tech problems and the distance, Maria continues to do what she knows best, parent her children, especially Jesus, who's in middle school. And you have to eat a very good breakfast before you go to school. No excuse. Anything you forgot to tell me, some secrets you're keeping from me. No. No. Okay, sweetie. Okay, Mom. Bye. 
Bye. After Maria hangs up the phone, she says she can breathe easy for a moment. Stop worrying, knowing all the kids are safe and sound at home. Maria spent hours researching how she might get a U.S. visa to be with them. But she's currently barred from returning to the U.S. legally for 10 years. Her deportation has taken a physical toll. Maria's grappled with depression and a heart condition that worsened in Mexico because of all the stress. This whole process, going back to the 2016 election, has been devastating. The night of the elections, as the map was turning red, it was like like if somebody was stabbing me little by little, you know. Maria's husband, Eusebio, first came to California when he was 18. He crossed the border near San Diego, and Maria followed on a tourist visa. They went back to Mexico to have their first child, Viani. Then they walked across the border and returned to Oakland. Maria put herself through nursing school while she worked full-time and raised her kids. She eventually became an oncology nurse at Highland Hospital in Oakland. After President Trump was elected, she started working extra shifts, nights too, whatever it took to save up money for the kids in case she got deported. Sometimes even, even two Red Bulls at night, so I wouldn't feel that tired. I always thought like one day of work for me means one week of food for the kids. The extra money she made was vital when she and Eusebio were deported last year. Paying the mortgage and putting four kids through school is hard enough in the Bay Area. But try supporting a family in Oakland from Mexico. Maria says nurses only make $12 a day down here. They've got some savings, but it won't last forever. Soon the kids will have to pay the mortgage. Maria and Eusebio bought a three-bedroom house in 2016 here in East Oakland with a flock of chickens out back. Inside, there are family photos scattered throughout the living room and a big table in the kitchen where the family used to gather for meals. So far, Viani's been too busy taking care of the kids and managing the household to get a job. I mean, I'm definitely mindful of of the bills. Like, I've been um, shopping for, like, cheaper car insurance for the cars as well. And um, also, I think we're going to change the phone plan. I mean, we would go out a lot on the weekends when my parents were here, but we don't really do that anymore. Viani does the Costco runs, stocks the fridge, and makes all the meals. It's tough because her little brother is a picky eater. He doesn't like sandwiches. So, like, he doesn't he doesn't eat bread unless it's, like, sweet, like, bread with milk. What does he eat at lunch, then? Like, snacks. Yeah, I had to figure out what to get him for lunch, so I like I got him gogurt. When Maria and Eusebio were deported, Viani was getting ready to apply to a nursing program. She wanted to follow in her mother's footsteps. Now her dreams are on hold. So are her sister Malines. Melina's finishing her last year at UC Santa Cruz, but she goes home to Oakland every weekend to help the family. And that's made school really tough. I don't study the same way. Like, I have much more anxiety, and my classes are, like, getting harder because it's, like, my senior year. Malene planned to go to medical school to be a pediatrician. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. For Viani, taking on all these responsibilities has helped her understand and respect her mother more. But parenting weighs heavily on her. You know, I can't afford to let anything happen to me. I mean... If I don't know what would happen to my siblings if I wasn't here. Because I know they don't want to go back to Mexico because it's not where they're from. Maria and Eusebio thought about bringing the kids to Mexico, but there are far more opportunities, 
better schools in California. Most people here in Santa Monica raise sheep. Eusebio has been helping out with his parents' sheep farm, but that way of life is becoming unsustainable. Eusebio points out at what's now a desert and says all this used to be fields of corn, beans, and barley. But the climate is changing. He says now there's no rain. Farmers here sell lamb tacos in Mexico City at street stands on weekends. But the cash they earn makes them targets for extortion by criminals. Maria's sister sells tacos, too. And she was recently robbed at gunpoint in her own house. This is not the life that Maria wants for her kids. Sometimes you don't even make enough to survive, and then you have to, on top of that, make some to give to criminals. There's no easy way for this family to reunite. Eusebio can't get a U.S. visa, but Maria's an oncology nurse, and her former employer, Highland Hospital in Oakland, has applied to bring Maria to the U.S. on an H-1B visa for skilled professionals. But those visas are chosen through a competitive lottery system. I know that's a long shot, but so far it's the only possibility I have. Maria says their deportation has forced her entire family to grow, to ultimately become stronger, better people. She doesn't see them as victims anymore. It's just a broken system, and and it just happened to be that I was there when that broken system became even more broken. Maria's proud of what she accomplished in California, graduating college, becoming a homeowner, and she's really proud of her kids, how they've stepped up in her absence. Despite how hard this has all been, Maria's kids still have way more advantages than she did, and she's found comfort in that. If I was able to do what I did without really having that much of support, they should be able to go even farther. As a backup plan, Maria says she'll apply for hospital jobs in Canada so she can put her kids through college and grad school. With a Canadian visa, she could pay the kids' tuition. She just won't be able to attend their graduation. For the California Report, I'm Levi Bridges in Santa Monica, Mexico. And I'm Melissa Jung Perry in Oakland. For so many immigrant families, that diploma means everything. It means a whole world opens up. We're going to meet another family now. The parents are immigrants from the Philippines. And when their son got into UC Berkeley, they were thrilled. Oh, he's the best. (laughs) He's the best son anybody wish for. (laughs) And he's got a pretty interesting name. Hi, my name is Miguel Yamigel. It's a lot of conversation starters. <laughs> Miguel Yamigel. I mean, when I was a teenager, my friends and I were talking like, what's going to be your son's name? Like, my son's name will be Miguel. Like, last name? Yamigel. Like, you know, so we won't get lost. It's right there in the last name. So It's like a rhyme. <laughs> Miguel Yamigel. <laughs> I just go for it. <laughs> Miguel's the first in his family to go to a four-year college, but... He's faced some challenges during his time at Cal. Challenges he hasn't even told his parents about. But we'll get to that in a bit. And over there, um, Martin Luther King spoke on those steps. For now, Miguel's Uh, just proud to show his parents around campus. I meet up with them as they walk through Sather Gate. Every time I go through this gate, I remember where I came from. I remember 
everything that you guys have taught me. And it's always a reminder of to remember where my roots are so that I never forget and I always like push that and build on that. Thank you, baby. <laughs> I, call, I still call him baby. <laughs> He's super tight with his parents who live in Long Beach where he grew up. Every day we called him, not a miss of a day. Starting from, Miguel, brush your teeth before you go to bed. <laughs> and the rest of it. Pray, pray, pray. all the time. <laughs> Miguel was a super achiever in high school. President of his class, 4.57 GPA. He's meticulous, organized, and he felt like he'd be a good fit for the military. He decided on Cal, but the patchwork of financial aid he got was barely enough to cover his expenses freshman year. He had a plan to get him through the rest of college, though, and into the military. My family didn't have a lot of money to start with, so I envisioned working very hard in Army ROTC and earning that scholarship starting um, sophomore year. Those Army ROTC scholarships could pay for tuition plus living expenses. I had everything checked off on what I needed to do, the GPA, the physical fitness requirements, the weight requirements, the class requirements. But he hadn't thought about one thing. The summer after freshman year, he says he got a letter from the Department of Defense that his eyesight wasn't good enough for military service. Now, how was he going to pay for school? What about his dream to join the military? I was I was falling. I was very much falling. And I saw failure after failure, no matter how hard I tried. He dropped out of ROTC sophomore year and plummeted into a deep depression. A very deep, deep, deep hole that I didn't know how to get out of. His grades started slipping. That was the fault with my plan. I didn't think of a plan B. Miguel ended up on academic probation, making student loans even harder to get. I didn't know how to talk about my feelings. I kept everything bottled in. I didn't know how to ask for help. So me digging myself into this hole, I felt very much by myself. He withdrew from Cal for a while to go to community college where tuition was so much cheaper. But he had to pay back some $10,000 in debt to UC. He started working at an Italian restaurant for a minimum wage. He brings me by for a tour of the kitchen, where a cook named Julio is expertly slicing an eggplant. Miguelito, I call it to Miguelito. <laughs> from the very beginning, from the very first day I started working at the restaurant, they started calling me Miguelito. <laughs> Especially person, like, you know, really good person. The restaurant workers, mostly immigrants from Latin America, checked in on Miguel when he was down, gave him free meals. They also confided in him. Many of them were undocumented. It gave me a whole entire realization of the privileges that I had as a U.S. citizen. They would work very long 10-hour, 11-hour work shifts and never complain about anything because they didn't have legal status here in the States or the resources to kind of fight for their employment rights. Miguel realized he wanted to become an immigration lawyer to help low-wage workers like the friends he made at the restaurant. And that gave him a reason to go back to UC Berkeley. He decided to major in legal studies. But first, he had to figure out how to pay for it, what classes to take all of it. He turned to Yuki Barton, a counselor with the Educational Opportunity Program on campus. She helps students from low-income first-generation families and says a lot of those students see a UC education as the golden ticket. And then when they get here, a lot of them feel tricked. Like, I got here, this was supposed to be the answer, 
but who am I supposed to turn to for food security? Who am I supposed to turn to, you know, to talk about my mental health? They are suffering in isolation with depression. They are skipping meals. They are couch surfing. All of these um, invisible struggles at, at such a prestigious and elite university, right? Miguel got off academic probation with help from a special class called Road to Resilience. He's going to graduate this December, but he walked with his graduating class a couple weeks ago. Miguel Godfrey Yamego. In the end, Miguel says, giving up on his original blueprint for college, getting an ROTC scholarship and going into the military, was actually a good decision. He saved a ton of money getting units at community college and found a career path he never expected. But here's the thing. He's kept all of this from his parents. Despite their daily phone calls, they still don't know about his financial struggles, his academic probation, the fact that he dropped out of Cal for a while. And it's not that I didn't want to tell her because in my heart it killed me every single day that I couldn't. It's just that sometimes when there's these expectations of me really succeeding and a lot of things putting a lot of expectations on myself that I can't face failure. It's really hard to go back home and say that I, I couldn't make it or I couldn't do it. But that motivated me all the more to make sure I did come back and I did finish because while it was for me, a lot of the times it was for them and it was for my family. He just wants his parents to see the Miguel that's graduating from UC Berkeley, the one who's going to take the LSATs and apply to law school, not the road it took to get there. You may have noticed we've been doing a lot of stories lately about the California dream, what that dream means to people from different walks of life. Now we've got a chance for you to tell us about your family's California dream. For a series we're calling Letters to My California Dreamer, we're asking you to write a short letter to one of the first people in your family who came to the Golden State. What was their California dream? What happened to it? And is that California dream still alive for you? To kick us off, here's my letter. Dear Mom and Papa, I know you came to California with a dream. You both wanted to go to UCLA and also wanted to live in a place where your relationship would be accepted. You met at Purdue, surrounded by cornfields in Indiana. It was 1965. Mom, you were a rebellious Irish Catholic girl who had gotten kicked out of an all-girls college and wanted to go to a co-ed school. Papa, you were a skinny Indian engineer whose entire family had taken the train from New Delhi to Bombay to wave goodbye as your ship sailed away. When you two met, interracial marriage was still illegal in Virginia, where mom's parents lived. Los Angeles was a place where you wouldn't raise eyebrows if you lived together, especially before you were married. Later, you could nurture us kids in an open-minded, multicultural city, far away from cold winters and attitudes. When you got to California in August of 1968, you both started at UCLA. Many years later, you would drive me and my brother past an old pink apartment building in Culver City to show us where you got your start. You raised us to be California kids, sledding on the sand dunes at the beach in December, pushing us to learn Spanish early on. 
sending us to an arts high school where, even though we didn't have money like my classmates with Hollywood pedigrees, we learned to think and question and be open to new ideas. The California melting pot lives on in our family. I married a fellow Californian whose parents are Japanese and Mexican, and we're raising our kids in a multicultural stew, exposing them to new ideas and sledding on the beach. That was your California dream for us 50 years ago, and we're still living it. Thank you. Love, Sasha. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's early California dreamer. Maybe it was a parent, a great-grandparent, or maybe even you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. We've got a place on our website for you to tell us your story, and we might ask you to record it for the California Report magazine. Check it out, californiareport.org. Our next story is not about an immigrant with a California dream, but about someone whose California dream is to speak up for immigrants. Part of what Jack Gerritsen loves about California is that it's a place where people have the freedom to protest and speak their minds. Reporter Tom Carroll spotted Jack on a bridge over a busy Southern California freeway. Drive just about anywhere in Los Angeles, and eventually you'll pass under a laminated black and white sign. No ice, it will yell in capital letters. These handmade proclamations pop up on bridges spanning freeways across Southern California, secured by zip ties. When I ran into an old white guy tying a sign to a fence, I was surprised. You're the no ice guy, I said. Yeah, you want to help? He said, smiling back. He gave me his phone number. So a few months later, I call him. I ask him why he puts up the signs. I'm against ICE enforcement of separating families. Jack is 81. I couldn't stop thinking about what would drive a man his age to climb up on bridges and overpasses all over Los Angeles. I knock on the front door of Jack's one-room cottage early one morning. Hey! Hey, Good morning, Jack. Good morning. Get your microphone ready. That's right. He's finishing up breakfast. Half an avocado and a bottle of Mexican Coke. He grabs a dozen rolled-up signs, a yellow rope, and a fist full of zip ties. The guiding force in Jack's life is his hatred of ice. He estimates he hangs 500 signs a year, even though he doesn't drive. He lost his license after a second DUI conviction, so he relies on friends and family, and sometimes even a reporter like me to cart him around L.A. Where are we going? What street? We're going to get on the 710 freeway going north. We hop in my car, Jack in camo pants and a cowboy hat from the 99 cent store, and we're on our way, headed to one of his favorite spots. Across the bridge? We pull off and park on the shoulder of a service road. Jack's got across a busy street, but in his 80s, he's not as nimble as he used to be. You gotta run, man, can you run? I fall down a lot when I walk, so I don't let you run. Hanging the signs isn't a simple operation, and like a master mountaineer, Jack has developed an elaborate system. There are ropes, hooks, zip ties, and a razor blade. Try, hey, people. Yeah, he does honk to you. When they say you're putting it up, they'll honk at me. It's, a, it's an indication of approval, I think. Jack likes that in California, a center of resistance to federal immigration policies, 
He can broadcast to tens of thousands of sympathetic commuters every day. That's the rewarding part of it, the positive response I get. But not everyone responds positively. You can cut them down if you don't like them. We are in Azusa, California, a freeway overpass. This is audio from a YouTube video titled Trump Supporter Cuts Down Freeway Overpass No Ice Sign, uploaded by a woman named Robin Vidston. We have discovered that open border individuals have placed a sign on the freeway that says no ice. She films a man as he cuts down Jack's sign. Jack doesn't mind that his signs get ripped down. It adds to his struggle. He has a saying about it. It's a Mexican proverb. It says, your life is redeemed not by winning a struggle, but by struggling. That's what redeems you, the struggle for what is right. I'm taking chances. Jack's protest days go back to the Vietnam era, specifically a 1967 protest in Century City that devolved into a bloody melee. It's not just an anti-authoritarian streak, though. He also has a strong connection to L.A.'s Latino immigrant community. Jack's been married three times, each time to a Latina. Through them, he spent time south of the border. And by the 1990s, he started transporting people north. I've been anti-ICE ever since they captured me transporting illegal aliens. Jack tells me about the night he was waiting in a truck near the border. Once he heard people climb in the back... He took off. He was pulled over, arrested, and later charged with transporting undocumented migrants. At trial, Jack was convicted of one count, fined $800, and sentenced to two years probation. After handing down the sentence, the judge had a simple question for Jack. He said, uh, Mr. Gerson, why are you taking these people to Los Angeles? And I was almost crying. And I said, Your Honor, if you could see the faces of a wife when I bring her husband back. You would understand. If you could see the faces of the children when I bring back their father, you would understand. Jack's too old for night runs on the border. Putting up signs is more his speed. He's just finished hanging one over the 5 freeway. As we leave, I look back at his sign. I notice something wrong and point. What's it, up backwards? It's upside, it's backwards? I put it up backwards? <laughs> huh? Jack knows his signs won't make ice disappear, but he's fighting for the California dream he believes in, the right to speak freely, and to help immigrants fight for their California dream. For the California Report, I'm Tom Carroll in Los Angeles. That story is part of a collaboration with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Working with us here on the California Report magazine, students spent a semester examining what the California dream means to Angelinos. We'll be bringing you more of those stories in the coming weeks. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Ryan Levy. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Rob Spade. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Special thanks this week to Sandy Tolan and Karen Lowe at USC. Our team also includes Susie Racho, David Marks, Nadine Sabai, Tyke Hendricks, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Have a great weekend. 
This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Artist Works. Jazz players can learn from internationally recognized artists Martin Taylor, John Petitucci, Peter Erskine, and more at artistworks.com jazz. And the California Healthcare Foundation, helping low-income Californians get the health care they need on the web at chcf.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.